Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my spicy clustermate Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, the last episode of season four, we talk about the very cool exploratory technique of cluster analysis, including concepts of multivariate distance, hierarchical and non-hierarchical methods, and how it differs from mixture models. Along the way, we also mention Scandinavian architects, raccoons on meth, vegetarian hot dogs, hot sauces, a shit ton of do loops, free range jam, statistical hairballs, Euclid's burial, the platypus problem, stars and galaxies, stealing from the hard sciences, ungulates and marsupials, and Amy Marie. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Not long ago, you somewhat enthusiastically told me that being early is on time and being on time is late. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yet here I sit with my feet on my desk, with my cooling cup of coffee, and you deemed it appropriate to finally join us this morning. Uh Uh-huh. Please, let's hear why late is... Well, what is late? If early's on time and... Late is left behind. Right. But you didn't leave me behind. Thank you. All right. So talk to me, brother. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) All right. So you might know this about me, that I appreciate things in order. I appreciate tidiness. I appreciate structure. I am aware. (laughs) Yes. Because when I'm in your kitchen Uh and you set the table, (laughs) you turn your back and I ever so slightly move a fork... And then just count in my head until it's back to its original Euclidean orthogonal orientation. A table should be set with a protractor. It's absolutely true. Um, There's this great meme that I saw. It said, in every partnership, there's a person who stacks the dishwasher like a Scandinavian architect and a person who stacks the dishwasher like a raccoon on meth. And I need the Scandinavian architect, right? So here's what just is, ah. Every morning there's a certain Swiss clockwork or Scandinavian clockwork, whatever it is, to be able to get kids out the door, to be able to get me out the door, to be able to take the dog to doggy daycare. But we were out of raspberry jam. To be specific, Bonne Maman raspberry jam. Comme à la maison. Confiture Bonne Maman, c'est toi que j'aime tant. And I needed that this morning to be able to make the trains run on time. So what do I do? I run over to the store. Of course, we have like six stores that I go to routinely, as you well know. I am aware. (laughs) I went up to visit. Greg said, I got to run by the store. I said, I'll keep you company. Three hours, 50 miles, and six stores later. So yes, I am familiar with this. You are. Right. So I go to Safeway this morning. And I go to where the raspberry jam is supposed to be. I go to where the raspberry jam has always been. And there's no raspberry jam. But there's not just no raspberry jam. There's no jam of any kind. So I'm like, what the heck? The whole day is going to be thrown off. Where is it? And I'm going up and down the aisles, you know, (laughs) like a raccoon on meth, (laughs) trying to look for this damn stuff. Where did they put it? All the way at the other end of the store next to bread. So I was late getting kids out the door, late getting Gus to the doggy daycare, late getting here because Safeway has decided that there's a better place for jam and it's at the other end of the store next to the bread. So the walkaway point for this is you're raising a generation, a snowflake (laughs) 
unconditional love children that if Tate doesn't have raspberry jam, he can't go to school. He didn't like the other raspberry jams we did have. <laughs> the three other. He had to have. <laughs> okay, so our version of Safeway in Carolina is Harris Teeter. Oh, yeah. So when I go to the store on Saturday morning to do the grocery run, there is not a day that I go that I'm standing in an aisle and say, who the hell organized this? Totally. Who put this product with that product, right? I do all the cooking at home. My kids and wife are vegetarian. So we cook vegetarian at home. I want to get vegetarian hot dogs. Where would you put the vegetarian hot dogs? (laughs) I would put them right in the garbage. (laughs) I don't care. You'd put them with the goddamn hot dogs. Of course you would. Do you know where they put the vegetarian hot dogs? In the produce section. (laughs) I'm not kidding. In the produce section. All right. Now, you've been down to my house. I have. And you know that I have a collection of hot sauces. Yeah. My wife still jokes, she knew that our relationship was getting serious when we were dating when I left my bottle of Tabasco in her cupboard. (laughs) All right. Among many others, I use Tabasco. Okay. I use Sriracha. Yep. And I use what may be my favorite, Cholula. Cholula. Cholula is a perfect balance of flavor and heat, blending spices and pepper. And those are the ones you all have seen those. They have the wooden round cap on them. Yeah, absolutely. They're at every Mexican restaurant that you go to. Indeed, that's the best. Those are in three different (laughs) sections, right? (laughs) So I don't know about where you are, but in North Carolina, we actually have an international aisle. In North (laughs) Carolina? It's really more of a shelf, but. (laughs) (laughs) But we have to go to three different cuisines Uh to get Tabasco, Cholula, and Sriracha. This is a source of extraordinary frustration. But I got to tell you, if we didn't have organizational systems, we would be lost. So what we're going to talk about today are how do we go about grouping things in meaningful and useful ways. We want to say, okay, let's take some individual units. What are the units? Hot sauces. Jams. Notice it's not even jelly. Tate wants raspberry jam. Yeah. Wait, did they pick out all the seeds? Is it seed-free raspberry jam? No, the organic is not seed-free. There it is. The organic. (laughs) So we have a set of items which go into a grocery store, and it is not unreasonable to say, how do we organize these to help people find these in an efficient way? So what would we do? Well, maybe we would code these items on a set of features. Is it a jam? Is it a jelly? Is it a spread? Can we have a, is it a hot sauce? And then I have three kinds of Tabasco, mm-hmm. right? There's original, there's chipotle, and there's green pepper. Yeah, I like the green. So we could even sub-characterize the Tabasco. Yeah. Now, we could organize those maybe theoretically, would all the jams and jellies go together, or 
how is this angry, muttering, somewhat frightening man going to use it? Well, everybody knows you put it on bread. Let's put it with the bread. If we put it next to the bread, maybe they'll get a loaf of bread while they're buying their snowflake child the only kind of jam that they're going to eat before going to school. You know, it's cruelty-free, free-range jam. (laughs) Free-range jam. (laughs) It's not like that blood jam that you eat. So if we have a set of things, and I don't care if they're hot sauces or different kinds of foods or people or any kinds of objects that you're interested in forming groupings, what you just said is we could do it theoretically on some basis, but we could also do it using the data. And when we say using the data, that means that every single unit that we have has a number of characteristics. For hot sauces, it could be things like place of origin, which is a categorical piece of information. It could be, what are they, Scoville units or something? Yeah, exactly. Capsaicin. Yeah, right. Capsaicin Scoville measurement. Yeah, how hot they are. It could be what it's made out of. Exactly. What type of pepper? Come on, man. I'm waiting for that. Yeah, ghost pepper or habanero, which is going to probably relate to how spicy it is. So there are all kinds of characteristics for that. Think about people. Think about kids. If you were measuring kids on a bunch of different characteristics that you found relevant, they might be how they engage with other children, don't engage, under what circumstances, etc. And what you want to do is to form meaningful groupings of these. And I don't care if you call those groupings clusters or classes or segments or partitions. There's a whole bunch of things that we could call it. But oftentimes we have an interest in simplifying the world and forming these kinds of groupings. And we encounter this every day, and thank goodness we do. Yeah. Imagine a library with 100,000 books. Well, how the heck are you going to put them together? Are you going to do it by author? Are you going to do it by genre? So we encounter this every day, which means that I wonder if we can apply this in our own research to try to make sense of a complicated world that we're studying. You know, one interesting thing about the library example, if I go to the computer that they have in the library and I open up whatever their search window is to search the stacks, I can type in things like mystery or whatever the different groupings might be. And the same book might actually appear in multiple of those groupings. On the other hand, the library doesn't put that book in seven different places throughout the library. What the library does is it has the book in one place. And for me, that's a little bit of a distinction between some of the ways we think about grouping. There are some methods where we think about groups, but we think about individuals having almost probabilistic membership in those different groups. Well, you're a little bit more like that group, a little bit less like that group. And then there are other techniques that just say, we are putting you in that place in the store. We are putting you on that shelf in the library. And that is where you're going to reside. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that ladder type where we form groups based on characteristics that we think are relevant. And in the end, we deem you to be a member of that group because you're more like that group than you are some other group. I love your raising the library because a single book really can only go in one place. And no library, as you say, is going to buy multiple copies of the book just because you're too lazy to walk up a flight of stairs. (laughs) So I really like that example. Now, we did an episode a while ago on latent classes, finite mixture modeling. 
What that is, is very, very similar to what we're trying to do. But at the time, we talked about those as what are called model-based. That is, we make certain distributional assumptions, we make certain parametric assumptions about the underlying generating process, and we try to extract groups from data that are model-based. But there's an entire class of techniques that I have to say I really like. And I like them because they're clever and they're creative and they make sense. And these are what are sometimes called heuristic-based. So we're not going to impose a model. We're not going to impose distributional assumptions. We're not going to compute likelihoods. What we're going to do is write a shit ton of do Do loops. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And what it is, is it's kind of a Rage Hulk, Sexy Hulk. Sexy Hulk is the latent class, and the Rage Hulk is, I am going to do like thousands of do loops. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Until the what about this isn't changing anymore, and the cat hacks up that hairball onto the desk, and there are your clusters. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be all about cluster analysis. Cluster analysis is, as you said, it's a heuristic technique. And there are lots of things in our lives where we are interested in grouping things based on the similarities that they have across a number of characteristics. And so what I'd like us to do is to start thinking through that do loop, what some of the decisions are that people make, how cluster analysis works. And there's going to be a lot of nuance in places that I don't even think we need to uncover. But the principles of cluster analysis are really understandable. It is quite remarkable. What we're going to do here is brute force hard code it, where the goal is to compute these clusters in a way that, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that tries to make the individuals within a cluster as similar as possible and between clusters as different as possible. And we're going to do that just using algorithmic heuristics. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do a deep dive. You could take a 16-week doctoral level class in this. And so we're going to kind of skim along the surface of it. And again, I've groused about this before, but I've heard multiple people say, well, I know you hate mixture models. I know you hate (laughs) making groups. And it's just not true. Yeah. That's just not true. I love this stuff. What frustrates me is that notion that you have discovered the truth as it exists in the population. Here are the three types of offending youth. Here are the four treatment responders. And what we're going to do here is to say, can we pull a page out of the old school multivariate motivation, which is I want to take a large amount of data and distill it down to a smaller amount of data without doing irreparable harm to my understanding of my sample or the process under study. And in this case, unlike when we do something like principal components analysis, we are not going to be, in essence, grouping variables. And I know that's not exactly what happens in principal components analysis, but dimensionally, you're sort of asking which variables are close and kind of go together. We're going to flip it, and we're going to talk about it in terms of the observations themselves, the cases, whether those cases are individual hot sauces or people or countries or whatever. Which of these can be sort of simplified, and we can think about them in categories? So we have a natural desire to organize things, and coincidentally, we can organize different types of cluster analysis, which I love, right? We can't help ourselves. Yes, more order, please. So we can think about cluster analysis in two broad types. There's hierarchical and there's non-hierarchical. 
And how I tend to think about it is hierarchical starts with as many clusters as there are individual observations and then tries to pair people up. You go with them, you go with them, you go with them. Non-hierarchical, you actually start with the number of clusters and then you puzzle your way who belongs to which one. But both of them are fundamentally driven by this notion of distance. And that's something we have to get our head around. If I start with everything having only one characteristic, right, like all your hot sauces having only whatever their Scoville rating is based on how hot they are, I could line up all the hot sauces along that continuum and I could look and see which hot sauces are closer to each other and which ones are farther apart. But now imagine I have two characteristics. One is how spicy it is, and the other is the thickness of that sauce. Some are more runny, and some are really, really thick, right? It takes a while for them to come out of the bottle. Now I have all of these hot sauces, not on a number line, but I have them in a plane, right? And so now if I want to think about which ones are similar, what I mean by similarity conceptually is ones that are located near each other in this space that's defined by how spicy they are and how thick they are. Well, those are really different variables, aren't they? But I could still imagine plotting them and I could still imagine that, oh, hey, look, there are some hot sauces up, you know, in the northeast corner and there are some hot sauces down there in the lower corner. But how do I characterize distance now that I am in these two dimensions? I know that in my past, all the way back into middle school, I characterized distance. Wait, is, is Euclid buried in your backyard? Now, from a distance measure, he's very close to Pascal, <laughs> but actually quite far from John Stuart Mill. So if you were to do that distance, uh -huh. yes, I have Euclid, <laughs> but he kind of clusters with the other mathematicians. Very, very nice. All right, so I have all these hot sauces plotted in two-dimensional space, and I could think about drawing a line between any pair of them and to use that to represent the distance. But here's the weird thing about doing that. One of my variables is in a metric that is Scoville heat units for how spicy things are, and the other one is in thickness units. So what is Euclidean distance when I have variables in these different units? One of the first things that gets done in many cluster analyses, not all, because sometimes the variables you have are in the same units, like all Likert scales, for example. But when you have variables that are in very different metrics, which absolutely can happen, one of the first things that you do is you try to put them on common units. And so there is often a preliminary step where there is a version of standardization. I'm not going to drill into that too deeply. I will say it's not typically straight up z-score standardization because z-score standardization is actually affected by the existence of groups, right? When things are farther apart, it jacks up standard deviations and you're standardizing with a jack up standard deviation, that's jacked up. <laughs> so we don't tend to do that. But there are standardization methods to try to get the metrics of the variables to be comparable so that now what I can do is I can start talking about the distances between observations. In most multivariate methods that we talk about, we have this P by P correlation matrix, and that's what helps us to understand the relations among variables. Well, now I want you to think about having an N by N distance matrix, or sometimes it's called a proximity matrix or a dissimilarity matrix. But the idea of this matrix now is that it goes from person one all the way through person N across the top 
top and down on the side. And at the intersection of every one of those is how far apart two observations are. So there are zeros along the diagonal because I am zero far from myself. It depends though, some days, some days. <laughs> and then off the diagonal then are all of the distances between the pairs of observations. This n by n distance matrix is the food for all of the analyses that we're going to be doing. And there are different ways to think about distances. There's obviously some Euclidean measure, at least for continuous data of the type we were talking about here with the hot sauces. You can have squared Euclidean distances, which sometimes people use because it tends to magnify things that are far apart, pushing them farther apart, making them seem more distinct. There are things called Manhattan or city block distances, a lot of different distance measures that have their relative strengths and weaknesses. We're just going to go ahead and go with the most intuitive one, I think, which is Euclidean, which is a very common measure. So now I have this matrix full of these Euclidean distances between observations, and this doesn't care how many dimensions there were. When we talked about hot sauce, we measured how spicy and the thickness of it, but we could have 18 different characteristics of hot sauces if we want. And assuming for now that they're all continuous, in the end, there is still a Euclidean distance between observations. So the next thing for us to do is to start deciding who goes with who. Now, Patrick set up this really nice dichotomy between methods that are hierarchical and methods that are non-hierarchical. And I'm going to give a brief description of hierarchical, but then we'll transition into non-hierarchical methods because those are really more recommended now than the hierarchical methods. But there's a lot of foundational ideas that I think are useful in the hierarchical strategy. And they are, as Patrick described, that is, it is very useful to think about everybody, every hot sauce, every whatever, in their own cluster out in space. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask, which two could we put together? And the obvious answer is, well, the two that are the closest to each other. And that's right. So we look throughout our entire matrix of distances, find the two that have the smallest distance between them, and boom, congratulations, you are a cluster. You are no longer distinct entities from our point of view. You are a cluster. So now there are n minus 1 clusters. And now I do this again. The process that I'm going through right now is sometimes called an agglomerative strategy where you build up into these groupings as opposed to a divisive strategy where instead you start off with one giant cluster and you start chipping away into blocks, which is not really that common as far as these things go. So I work up agglomeratively. And you might think, oh, sweet. So now I just go to the matrix and I look for the next closest ones and I group those. But here's the problem. What do you do when you start talking about the distance between an individual observation and some things that have already been clustered? Or imagine I've got this group of three hot sauces over here and a group of four hot sauces over there. How do I talk about the distance between those clusters? Well, there are a lot of ways, and all of these are very intuitive. We could say those two clusters are as far apart as their nearest members might be. That's one way to think about how far apart they are. Or we could think about them as being as distant from each other as their farthest members. Or we could imagine each of those clusters as having centroids in space, and we could talk about it as the distance between those centroids. Oh, yeah, that would work too. One very common method, and again, this is all so primitively simple, it's beautiful, one thing I could do is I could just take the distances between all members of these two clusters and then just take an average of those. And that turns out to be a pretty effective method. It goes by a couple of different names. Sometimes it's called an average linkage method or a between groups linkage method. But it makes sure that every single point in a cluster has a voice in determining the distance. So how do you describe this? Is like a do loop? 
right? Just one just big old dude. massive nested do loop. There you go. You start with everybody in their own cluster. You put two people together, and then you recompute distances. Not for most of the people, right? Because they're still individuals. But I have to recompute now how each cluster deviates from the other people and from the other clusters. So I turn that crank over and over and over, starting with individual cases all the way until the very last step where I've got these two clusters. Now, the two clusters could be this one weird hot sauce that is so freaking hot and so freaking thick that it is off by itself and it has so far refused to be clustered with the other hot sauce. It is your destiny. Join me. I'll never join you! But more likely that last step is taking this group of observations that have been clustered this other group of observations that have been clustered and smushing those together across the distance that they have in multivariate space. So we have this whole agglomerative algorithm that goes from n clusters all the way down to one cluster. And the decision then is when do we stop? When are we smushing things across space that are really too far apart to be smushed? And there are a number of different guidelines, just like when we do principal components analysis, we say, how many components do we extract? Same thing in cluster analysis, we say, how many clusters do we form? There are different kinds of guidelines. There are scree-like things where we say, you know, we made a really big jump in how far apart things are that we're smooshing together. Maybe we should stop and say, all right, four clusters we have left. That's what we're going with. But then there are some other more rigorous mathematically, but even then, not such a problem. But this is a hierarchical, agglomerative strategy. And historically, it was very common, but it has a number of shortcomings, right? The platypus. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know the platypus is venomous? No, it's not. Shut up. Look it up. Nope. It is not. The platypus is venomous. Okay, folks, he's looking it up on his phone. Stop talking. Blah, blah, blah. Hi, this is Jiffy in post-production. As a public service announcement to help keep our quantitude friends safe, should they encounter a platypus in the wild, Patrick was actually right. As explained by Rosie from the Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital... Male platypus are one of the few venomous mammals. They have a spur on their heel of their foot, and that spur is connected by a duct to a venom gland. And the venom can kill very small animals. It won't kill a human, but it hurts you so much that you don't want to have that experience. Thanks, Rosie. Stay safe out there, mate. There's a very famous data file that lives out on the internet for learning this stuff. 100 zoo animals, 16 features. And this is very famously used in demonstrating everything that Greg just talked about in this hierarchical clustering procedure. And it never knows what to do with the platypus because it has such a weird combination of these features that the platypus tends to just sit out there all by itself. That's that super hot hot sauce that Greg was talking about. But there's several limitations with the hierarchical that tends to move us to non-hierarchical more often than not. One is, and this is one of the biggest distinguishing features of non-hierarchical, once two things are put together, they can't be undone. Right. The term I like sometimes is hierarchical clustering is myopic. Hmm. That is, once they're paired, you can't undo them, and it just cascades down. And what we'll talk about in a moment with non-hierarchical is you're actually going to build in even more do loops and allow for reassignments because it's kind of a living process. All right, so that's one issue. 
Now, another is the things that live in the wild that you're studying don't necessarily form in hierarchies. You don't have mammals and then sub-taxa within that of types of mammals. And that's what the hierarchical does. And so there can be limitations with that as well. And what often we do is to say, wait, 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 we still have the same motivating goal, but what we want to do is say, instead of starting with N clusters and seeing how few is few enough in this hierarchical rule assignment, we're actually going to flip it a little bit. We're going to start with the number of clusters. Now, this also is problematic because do you start with one or two or three or four or five? And mm. the answer is yes. <laughs> it's very similar to exploratory factor analysis of comparing different features. But what we're going to do is do an iterative procedure where we assign, evaluate, reassign, reevaluate until things stabilize in a way that we're happy with. And we're going to get these clusters that are not nested hierarchically, but still have features of the individuals that makes them want to live together in their group a little bit more than in another group. So let's say we started off with there are two clusters. Do I just say there are two clusters or do I actually put a point randomly in space and say, congratulations, you guys go over there and put another point in space? Do you know how that works? There are a whole bunch of different ways that we can do this. And in the spirit of sensitivity analysis, contemporary applications say do them all and let's figure out if there's a core set of findings that we can try to understand across these different methods. Mm -hmm. You know what I really like is... Forgive me a moment and allow me an analogy. Go way back to your first semester grad stat class when you learned analysis of variance. Mm -hmm. And you had a single factor with multiple levels. And maybe that factor was self-identified religious affiliation. And we'll just call them group one, two, three, four. They're independent. You can only live in one of the four groups. Mm -hmm. It's just a classic one-factor, four-level ANOVA. Now, how do we do the ANOVA? Well, we have a single continuous dependent variable. And what we ultimately want to do is to compare the within-group variability. So how similar are people within group one to one another? And we do that also in group two and three and four. But we want to form a ratio of that to between group variability. That is how different are the groups? Well, we know the groups. We formed the groups. We have our outcome. But that's ANOVA. We're looking at within group to between group. What's very similar of what we're going to do in these non-hierarchical procedures, except we're going to use that distinction as part of our assignment rule. A term that I like from early days is we want clusters that are internally cohesive and externally isolated. What does it mean? We want to create clusters and assign individuals in a way that the individuals within a cluster are similar to one another, but the clusters are different from one another. So it's very similar to the ANOVA, except instead of knowing the groups, we're going to create the groups. So I love this idea of a between to within ratio, and I absolutely know how to think about it in the analysis of variance because we have one outcome variable. But now imagine I've got all these points in space. 
I think about within variability as how far those points are from their own centroid, right? The middle of a set of points, that's like within variability. And then I have between variability, which would be a function of the differences between the centroids of those particular clusters. And what I think you just said is that a better clustering solution is something where the between separation, the gaps between these clusters is much, much bigger than the variability within those clusters, how far the individual members are from their own cluster centroid. And what Greg described is literally stars in a galaxy, and we're simply trying to figure out where is that center of the galaxy, and to which galaxy should we assign this particular star? It's a perfect visual. I love that. There are, in fact, a hundred billion other galaxies, each of which contains something like a hundred billion stars. So there are many ways that we can do this. K-means, K-medians. One that I love is simulated annealing. Ooh, nice. Annealing is some way of making steel, I think, where you like heat it and reheat it Mm. to strengthen it. So simulated annealing. It's like, come on, guys. We're a soft science. You don't need to steal these seemingly (laughs) harder concepts. The most common one that you have is K-means. And just know that there are other ways of doing this. But it's kind of funny. What is K-means clustering? Well, K is the number of clusters, and means indicate that we're trying to compute the means within cluster. That's literally what it is. K-means clustering. So let's say that we're looking at behavior in children, and we have a sample of 100 kids, and then we have a set of 20 measures on Y that measure aggression and impulsivity and hyperactivity, whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that you have. The very first thing we have to do is right out of the gate, say how many clusters there are, all right? A lot of people, this frustrates us, say, well, I don't know. Well, that's the point, is what we're going to do is we're going to compare different numbers of clusters across solutions as part of the identification of what are the number that are optimal for your data. So let's say I start with three clusters. All right, well, we have to initialize the system. What that means is somehow we have to put everybody in one of the clusters as a starting point. Sure. Maybe we just randomly assign. Put a third, a third, a third, and you throw them in. You can start with a hierarchical and then use that for three clusters. Hmm. Let's just say we randomly assign. We're just going to say, okay, everybody, it doesn't matter. There are three doors. Go through the one that you want. Step two is we're going to try to assign an individual to actually their closest cluster. Mm. So we started with random, and then we're going to now update it and say, okay, no, no, no. I told you to all go through the three doors. I want you to go over here. I want you to go over here. Then step three is we're going to compute the means with the individuals who were in those clusters. And then using various algorithms that are available, we're going to reassign people and say, all right, everybody out of the room, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here. (laughs) Well, now there's a new set of means. So we compute those cluster means and then we reassign and then we recompute the means and we reassign and we do this a boatload of times until observations aren't moving anymore. The system is stabilized and that is our final cluster solution. What's the drunken punch in the face? Well, K-means clusters suffers from exactly the same challenge that we talked about in mixture modeling, which is it is replete with local solutions. Mm-hmm. That is, just because you got one solution, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the best solution. This is an issue in finite mixture models as well. And so what you do is you repeat what we just talked about, 
Doug Steinle has written a whole bunch on this. He's one of the most knowledgeable people in the world in classification. And Doug says, repeat 5,000 times, maybe 10,000 times. And then there are algorithms for choosing the optimal final solution. And then that's it. You have your clusters using a heuristic. Notice we haven't talked about multivariate distributions. We haven't talked about likelihoods. We haven't talked about parametric boundaries. It's just, you go over here, you go over here, you go, ah, damn it, you go back over there. Good, My bad, I need you three to go over there, you two stay there, you go over there, and we do that 10,000 times, all right? So what we've done is unabashedly, without guilt, data-driven to the core. That is the technique. We are not testing hypotheses. We do not say, ah, consistent with theory, I have three clusters. This is, oh my gosh, I have 200 kids, 20 features, and I'm just trying to figure out organizing structure with a smaller dimensionality that helps me understand the complexity of this. And that at its core is what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you validate the clusters? Maybe the most common way, and it's horrible, you use the ANOVA to look for significant group differences on the variables <laughs> that went into the clustering. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I had dinner with Doug at the all-you-can-eat Brazilian steakhouse. <laughs> yes, and we, we did. have seen Doug go on his intellectual rants, and this is one of my favorites. With mouthfuls of meat. With mouthfuls of meat. <laughs> Well, that's it. I'm done. Here come the meat sweats. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I do like ANOVA for diagnosing the variables that are most relevant for defining the clusters, right? Because some variables you involve in cluster analysis just really, in the end, don't separate the groups out. So I like it for that. But we really shouldn't be using the same variables for validation, right? That just is going around and around. If you don't find mean differences in the items that went into your clustering, then your clustering (laughs) didn't work. Yeah. So what do you do? Well, the jury is still out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But you can compute those groups and look at variables that did not go into the clusters. Yeah, I think about the variables that are used for clustering as having some conceptual reason for being used. They might all be characteristics of behavior of kids, or they might be characteristics of hot sauces. And I want to know now about the relation that those different groupings have with variables that we consider to be meaningful outcomes that we want to relate things to. And the validation comes in that we would expect these groupings to relate more to certain characteristics than others. If we had groupings of people with respect to their alcohol consumption behavior, it would make sense that some of those groupings are related to particular outcomes more than others, right, based on our understanding of alcohol consumption consumption behavior. It might also be the case that we wish to think about there as being variables that are precursors to this particular grouping. What are some things that might have led, we'll say, children to be in these particular behavior patterns or adults to be in these particular alcohol consumption patterns? So the idea of relating it to other things I can absolutely live with because I often separate out variables in terms of those that are meaningful for clustering versus those that are meaningful as predictors or outcomes. 
times. And this is why I love the common sense aspect of it. If you give me a 20 by 20 covariance matrix and a mean vector on 500 people and say, I'd like you to tell me a story about predictors and outcomes of these 20 features, this is one way that I would go about doing that. Mm -hmm. Now, another neat thing about this is these methods are pretty readily available. SPSS has a clustering package. Yep. SAS has a clustering package. And I bet there's some way you can do it in R. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but these things are readily available, and there are lots of tutorial sources on this on YouTube, online. And indeed, Doug and Dan Bauer teach an entire class on clustering and mixture modeling for us at CenterStat. You can get a five-day class on that. So these things are available. They're well understood. They're well known. They're pretty straightforward to apply. Yeah. But come on, man. Something's got to keep you up at night with this. <laughs> As a model-based <laughs> likelihood guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love the simplicity of these, right? But... First of all, like anything else, to derive meaning from it, you have to remember that your sample should be representative of something, for God's sake. So if you are going to form these clusters out of your observations and treat those clusters as being meaningful for whatever purpose, for understanding the world, for thinking about diagnosis, for whatever it is you care about, you can't forget that your data have to be good quality, first of all. So the sample needs to be representative. Second of all, we really have to treat these ideas of clusters and the specific members in those clusters as kind of shaky, right? Imagine that you have 20 variables that you're doing your cluster analysis on and you get the solution. You're like, oh, I love it. Let me write my discussion section. And then you rerun the analysis, <laughs> leaving out a variable or leaving out two variables. And you're like, what just happened, right? So it's important to understand that what you do in cluster analysis does depend on the observations that you have. Absolutely depends on the variables that you have. Cluster analysis is not a way to bring order to crap. If you want meaning, then you have to have good samples, theoretically meaningful variables, and understand that this is a loose, fuzzy understanding about the way that we might group things. All right, what about you? What do you lose sleep over? I agree with everything that you said. It is a convenient fiction that is of use to us, Yeah, right? It's practical. I think the one thing, in addition to what you just described, is when you learn this, the data that are used as examples are not the same as what we encounter in the real world. For example, when you do the zoo data, and this is out there, and if you want to learn this or use it in class, or it's just fun, if you like playing around with R and want to see how this works, download the zoo data and see how this goes. Because especially the hierarchical, there's some really neat graphical representations of these. It's just very cool. But here's the problem, is with the zoo data, we get all the clusterings, and then you say, oh, I knew it the whole time. These are the <laughs> ungulates. Oh, yeah, those five is you've got an elk and you have a cow and you have a whatever. And then here, the marsupials. Oh, yeah, of course, the kangaroo goes into the marsupials. And then you have one non-clustered and it's the platypus because platypuses <laughs> are poisonous. And it makes so much sense. Except when you do it with your data, the platypus is actually ID number 28. Yeah. And the ungulates are ID 157, 14, and 63. 
you don't know that Jill Williams has a cloven hoof <laughs> and, you know, Markel has a pouch and Amy Marie is venomous. We don't know that. And so you learn it in this super cool way. There's the platypus. Yeah. But that's actually Amy Marie, and nobody knows that she's venomous. Right. <laughs> and that should keep you up at night. That should keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah. So I am all over these. There are limits like everything else, and you should just go in with your eyes wide open. But I think they're really promising. I think they're fun. We do encourage people to check this out. It is a cool family of techniques, for sure. And stay the hell away from Amy Marie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on this, our 125th episode. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go when they want to feel a whole lot more agglomerative and a lot less divisive. You can follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, which, by the way, makes great graduation gifts like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to donorschoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that platypuses everywhere give two spurs up. But be careful. Today's episode has been sponsored by less commonly used measures of distance and methods of agglomeration. Like, instead of nearest neighbor or average neighbor clustering, there's worst neighbor ever clustering. Connects cases based on juiciest neighborhood gossip, Like, did you hear that Case 14 tried to cluster with Case 23, but the whole time it was actually clustering with Case 44? And, instead of the Manhattan or city block distance, there's the Uber distance, where connecting points that are farther apart will cost you more, especially during peak hours. But don't complain about it or you won't get a five-star rating, and then you'll never cluster anything again. Also, instead of centroid clustering, there's hemorrhoid clustering, where people are clustered together who are the biggest pains in the ass just so you don't have to deal with them. And finally, there's the quantitude clustering algorithm, where any two points can be connected, literally any, no matter how random and unrelated they seem. The only problem is that it can feel like it takes forever until the connection between two points is finally made, and even then, it feels weak and frankly a bit forced. This is most definitely not NPR. See you in season five. Free range jam. (laughs) I've seen a picture of that, and Uh it's a beautiful rolling hill in Ireland, Mm -hmm. and it's just covered with jars of jam. And they can go anywhere they want. Absolutely. It's not like that blood jam that you eat. (laughs) We use jelly, my friend. (laughs) And you either eat it or you don't eat it, but you're going to school either way. Jelly is the same term they use for petroleum jelly, which is Vaseline. I'm not going to eat something that's called the same thing as Vaseline. I am not saying that I did not use food coloring and Vaseline the morning that we didn't have jam. We were so poor. We ate food-colored Vaseline on our toast. (laughs) Okay, Grandpa.